Being a kid in Texas, I was raised eating Whataburger. I guess I'm not alone. Ate it all the time, talked about it all the time. But it wasn't until I was about 16 or 17 years old when I was taking down some late night taquitos that I looked at my cup and recognized that it said Whataburger and not Waterburger. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Beloved, as we enter Acts chapter 2 and we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would read the words of God clearly and understand clearly what the word says about the Holy Spirit and not miss something that we talk about often and is a significant part of our life. Sometimes we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit and so we make things up on our own, but we want the word to tell us clearly who the Spirit of God is as he shapes our life and as we talk about him. If you remember back in Acts chapter one, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem because in just a few days, the Holy Spirit was coming to empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit was promised even way before Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1. We're going to see in our text today, and as we reference other scriptures, the prophets promised Jesus. Paul himself calls the Holy Spirit the promised one from God. And Jesus spoke of him even before his crucifixion. In fact, in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So though Christ was leaving to administer the kingdom at the right hand of God, he is sending his spirit to be a helper to the church. And so when Christ says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, lo, I am with you uh, to the very end of the age, we see that he is with us as he sends the spirit of God to minister amongst us. God says to the prophet, prophet Habakkuk in chapter two of his book, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. Well, the disciples are waiting for the Spirit of God to come. We understand what it's like in life to wait for things, and I hope as we open up Acts chapter 2 and we move through the book of Acts that we will realize that whatever God promises, it comes to pass. Whatever covenant is ever made is realized by God. What is ever given to his people will come to a realization. And this gives us great hope, beloved. And as we open up Acts 2, a massive fulfillment of God's promise occurs as he gives his Holy Spirit to his people. In fact, it's a promise so big that it says in Acts chapter 17, it turns the world upside down. 
turned our lives upside down if we have received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was not promised to dwell in buildings or on certain people like in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God begins to dwell in the people of God. And so I, I want a couple of questions to drive us through the text today. The first question is this, who is the Holy Spirit? Because that doctrine is very important. And then the second question that we'll get to towards the end of the sermon is, what is his purpose? What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he is God. As the manifestation confirms in verses 1 through 3, if you'd look with me there. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The disciples were together and they were devoted to prayer as we talked about last week. And it says, as the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. Now, Pentecost was one of the three harvest festivals that Israel celebrated during this time of year. It is known as the Festival of Weeks also, or the Feast of Weeks. Perhaps you know it by that name. And the Feast of Weeks celebrated the end of the grain harvest. Penta in the Greek means 50, and it was 50 days from the Feast of first fruits to the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of first fruits, just to give us some context, and this is an important context, the Feast of first fruits occurs during the Passover, and Israel celebrates the very first things that rise out of the ground, giving thanks to God for the harvest that has come. So 50 days later, there's another feast, another time of thanksgiving, the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates all that God has given to them during this harvest time. So many things that have sprouted out of the ground, the grain that has come out of the ground. And we see, if you have time later today, go look at Leviticus chapter 23 and see how God lays forward these feasts for Israel to recognize. Now, what I want us to see in a theological lens today is that in the midst of the Passover meal, it is Christ who came out of the ground. He came out of the ground, and then 50 days later, as we will see next week as the gospel is proclaimed, a new type of harvest comes, and that is the souls of 3,000 that rise out of the dead. And I say this to us, church, because I hope we are a church that recognizes that Christ comes to fulfill all the feasts and the festivals of Israel as the complete Israel himself, who is forming a new people to himself. Now pay attention to what is said there in verse 2. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So as they're waiting and praying, the glory of heaven filled the house. Now this word here uh, for wind uh, talks about breath and life. And it's helpful that, that Luke is actually giving us an explanation uh, that will, will make us understand what the text is saying when he's talking about a sound like wind and tongues as of fire. They're waiting and they're praying and all of a sudden, this mighty sound is all around them. 
And the tongues of fire are before them. So we are hearing something and they're seeing something. And we see in verse 4 that it's the Holy Spirit who begins to fill the disciples as they're praying. Now, wind is not in the room because notice what he says. A sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the room. And as I already mentioned, wind means the breath of life. And it serves throughout the scriptures as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, breath, we see that God breathes into the dirt and he forms life. That's us, Genesis 2, 7. We see in Job 33, the spirit of God made me, Job says. The breath of God gives me life. In John chapter 3, Jesus says with his own words, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is a life-giving force who brings forward new life. And what Jesus says in John chapter 3 is, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the pneuma, is the Greek word. That's where we get the doctrine of pneumatology, the, 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 the doctrine of the, the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and where the pneuma blows, you cannot explain it. You do not know where it's coming and where it's going. H have you ever been in a tornado? I actually have, because I lived in Oklahoma. And it is very, very loud. It is the sound of a freight train if you've been near it. Uh, can you imagine in the middle of the night as they're praying with their friends in a normal prayer, prayer gathering, a sound like a mighty rushing wind or like a freight train comes around them and absorbs them? That's exactly what is happening here. Just as the Spirit of God filled the temple of God in Isaiah chapter 6, filled the glory of God in the temple, the Spirit of God is now filling this house, and he is now filling these people. There is a powerful moment here that I don't want us to pass over. Because Jesus says in verse 8 of chapter 1, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And this is exactly what is happening. And Luke's imagery is helpful because it connects with what are called theophanies that are revealed in the Old Testament. Now, a theophany is the visible appearance of an invisible, of the invisible God. And wind is one of those things. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 19. But fire is one of those theophanies in, as well. In fact, it's the most common theophany in the Old Testament that we see. We see throughout the Old Testament things like the burning bush, which spoke to Moses, and that the bush was not consumed. We see it's a pillar of fire by night who is ushering Israel through the wilderness. Uh, we see that it's fire that takes the sacrifice off the table after Solomon's prayer. We see that it's fire that ascends down Mount Sinai as Moses and the people of God have gathered there. We see that it's fire in Isaiah chapter 66 of a promise that God will be like the chariots of fire that gather in the sky. We see in Hebrews chapter 12 that God himself is the all-consuming fire. 
Now, fire is a source of light. And as one commentary helped me realize this week, our generation doesn't recognize fire often as the source of light because we have electricity. But fire, for most of human history, is the main source of light. And here, when we see fire in the scriptures, it's pointing to the one who brings light out of darkness. He is, God himself is the truth of light who illuminates for us what is true and what is false. We see that he is the light of the world who is going to banish darkness and bestow his wisdom to the nations. This is promised in Isaiah 9, Habakkuk chapter 2. We see it fulfilled in Christ in John chapter 1. Light also produces heat, which produces warmth and comfort. That's exactly what is happening here. The Spirit of God is falling on these people, and he's warming the hearts of these saints, giving them new affections. As Jesus taught us, what proceeds from the heart comes out of the mouth. And that is what is happening here as the Spirit rested on each of them as a fire. So the Spirit is for all of us, and it's for each of us, as it says. So in this moment, beloved, they receive the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission, which is to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, I want us to take a moment to make sure that we have our categories in place doctrinally before we work through the book of Acts. Who is the Holy Spirit? We want to make sure that we have this clamped down and that this doctrine means something to us. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is fully God, equal to the Father and to the Son. He is the third person of the Holy Trinity. He is a he and not an it. Oftentimes we refer to the Holy Spirit like the force in Star Wars. And that is untrue. It's blasphemy, actually. He is God fully and completely. In fact, the Baptist Catechism helps us understand this more further in the eighth question that we ask. Are there more gods than one? And the scripture provides that answer for us. There is but one only, the living, true God. Well, where do we get this? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. We see in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, the one Lord is the one true God. This is who he is. The ninth question of the Baptist Catechism is also an important question. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Well, where does the scriptures say that? Well, we see in 1 John 5, 7, that there are three that give testimony. And the three agree. We see in Matthew chapter 28, that we are baptized in the name, the one singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
We see this worked out a little bit in John chapter 15, how this works, this relationship in the Holy Trinity, and we'll talk more about it as we work through the book of Acts. But we see that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, John 15, 26, and proceeds from the Son as the Son sends him. And as Paul writes, he is the Spirit of Christ, a different person, yet related and glorifying and humble and teaching us the glorious nature of the one true living God. We see the from the pages of Scripture that he is a person and that the Holy Spirit is only one person, which means that Jesus does not become the Holy Spirit. We do not believe in modalism, but he is an individual person. We see this in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, that we are one body in one spirit. We see his personhood explained in other ways. Like in Hebrews chapter 3, he speaks. The spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, meaning the voice of Christ, do not harden your hearts. This has been my prayer for our church this week. He has intelligence in John chapter 14, 26. He teaches us and he brings the doctrines that Christ taught to our minds. He has feelings in Ephesians 4. He can be grieved when there is sin. He has will in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, in, in that he, by his will, appoints to the church specific gifts that he gives to the church. He convicts us of sin in John chapter 16. He is the one who regenerates our hearts. He breathes life into our hearts, as we see in John chapter 3. He is the agent responsible for bringing us into the second birth. Done through faith. He is distinguished from his own power. In Luke 4, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who fills Christ. And as Paul is preaching the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he is weak, but he is filled with the strength of the Holy Spirit as he preaches Christ crucified. If you lie to the Spirit, you are lying to God, as we'll see in Acts chapter 5. In fact, if you lie, you fall over dead, as Ananias and Sapphira did. Certainly a unique situation, but a serious situation that I hope we take hold of. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which simply means a, a conscious hardening of the truth, is unforgivable, according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. This is the Spirit that has now descended upon the disciples and rested in them and is dwelling within them. We also see the Spirit is the fulfillment of God's promises. Look with me there in verse 4 for our second point. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So think about that. They are speaking different languages, different tongues. That's what that word means right there. Known dialects, they're speaking forward. Things that they did not previously know. And as we're going to see, the purpose of this is for evangelism. It's for mission. For the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that the gift of language is also given to the church for the point of edification. But what I want us to see here is that it's for the purpose of mission and evangelism. 
and the Spirit is given when he fulfills specific promises. This fulfilling of the people is answer to specific prophecies that were given forward. And it's quite important how we interpret the scriptures because we have seen that there have been uh, factions that have broken off based on the interpretation of the Holy Spirit. I want us to see soundly that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost signals a turn in salvation history as a sign of the new covenant that is given to the church in the blood of Christ. Something new is happening. A new endowment is being poured out on the people that has never happened throughout the church, or excuse me, throughout the history of God's people. We do see in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God falls on prophets like Moses and on kings like David and, and Saul and on the judges. Uh, but we also see that it does not fall on everyone as Numbers 11.29 teaches us. So this is a new era occurring within the people of God. But even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is promised. We see in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He makes, the word makes prophecy in Jeremiah 31 about the same thing. And as we'll see next week in Joel 2, as Peter preaches the gospel in fulfillment to those very promises. We do know, just in our timeline of the narrative of the gospels in the, in the early church, that the, that the apostles already believed in Christ. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And his response, um, Jesus' response is, bless you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We see in John chapter, or excuse me, John 20, that uh, Thomas's life had already been affected. He was a doubting uh, a follower of Jesus. But when he saw the risen Lord, he no longer doubted and he followed Christ faithfully after that. But we see here that this is a new power for a new mission that is taking place. And I hope we recognize this transition that's taking place in the church's history. This is a unique endowment. That does not mean that we must also experience the exact same things that these disciples experienced in this upper room when the Spirit of God was on them like a freight train in the night and tongues rested upon them in different ways. There are some who, 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 who say that they are Christians and follow Christ that believe that Pentecost is a new marker that each of us now should experience. That if the disciples receive sort of like a second blessing in their lives, that we are also to experience that same blessing. Beloved, I would simply say this to you, and we'll talk more about it as we work through the book. But if that is what you believe, then the 
then the significance of Pentecost is limited. What God is doing here is not a first second blessing that follows many second blessings. We're going to see the outpouring of the Spirit in chapter 8 and chapter 10 to the Gentiles in unique ways. But I, I do want us to see that the Spirit was lavished on these witnesses of Christ as they testify to God's mighty acts. Think of a giant uh, like watershed or a water tower that is just filled and it's then distributed to all the houses in the community, giving each house water. In a sense, that's a picture of what's going on here. It's being lavished out. And as the word goes forward and the spirit goes forward, testifying to the word who is Christ, then the church is then filled with the spirit of God. And that is what we'll see throughout the book of Acts. What is the purpose of this spirit? In fact, it's laid out for us in verses 5 through 13. It is to proclaim God's mighty works in Christ. That is why the Spirit is given to the church. Look with me in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of his, uh, each of his, uh, his own native language? So notice who hears the utterances first. Look with me there in, in verse 5. Jews, and, and they're devout Jews, and they're from every nation. Probably in Jerusalem because they're celebrating these festivals that we've talked about. Also we see in verse 11 that there's proselytes there. These were Gentiles who had converted over. Uh, to practicing Jewish law and observing the festivals. But I want us to remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, 10 that, the, that the gospel first goes to the Jews. Uh, Paul says the very same thing in Romans chapter 1. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that's exactly what's being fulfilled right here. And they gather together at the sound that is occurring amongst these disciples, probably the speaking of tongues, and they were baffled. Why were they baffled? Because some pretty common men were sitting around speaking in their own dialects the things of God. They're bewildered because if you remember, they're, they're in celebrating the festivals, but it doesn't mean they're communicating with each other. They're simply observing the same things. And the question they're asking is, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Well, their own dialect is what the language implies, which is a miracle in and of itself. And for a moment, we see that all that was scrambled in Babel is actually quite clear. I have for you up on the screens just a reminder of Babel. And what occurred in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, God's word reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us lay bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. 
And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man built. And the Lord, uh, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from uh, over the face of the earth and they left off the building, off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. I want us to see why God did this. They were building for themselves a tower in order to make their name great, to make their name great. And I also want us to see what the text says in that they did not want to scatter on the face of the earth, which is exactly what God commissioned man to do in Genesis chapter one and two. Go and fill the earth and subdue it. And they said, we don't want to subdue it. We want to stay right here and we want to make a nation for ourselves that is great. And so God judges them. But here we see in Acts chapter 2 that men from every nation come back together. And for a moment, that great barrier of language is not an issue. Uh, is, is language barrier not a significant issue? It is a greater barrier than even the seas itself. It takes longer to learn a language than it does sail the seas. But for a moment, you can hear plainly in their own language the things of God. Look what it says in verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those are all from Iran area. Residents of Mesopotamia, Iraq. Uh, Judah, which is Jerusalem and the, the surrounding areas. Cappadocia and Pontus in Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, which is Asia and Turkey, as we're going to see in Acts chapters 13 through 20. Egypt. And the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, this is Africa. Visitors from Rome, Italy, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. Beloved, men from the north, south, east, and west. They can hear utterances from these men through the Spirit of God. And what is it that they are hearing? Well, look what the text says. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And like that, the mighty works of God are being taught to the men of every nation, clearly. Well, what are the mighty works exactly? That's a natural question from the text. I want us to remember what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 26. This is what he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is why the Spirit came, to bear witness about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The life that he lived, the, the crucifixion and the atonement that he captured for his people and the victory that he had over death in the resurrection. This is why the Spirit was sent. Beloved, I, I want us to think about that because oftentimes the way that our cultures and our, our church talk about the Holy Spirit is to seek a great experience. But what is coming forward through this word is though the miracle is remarkable, 
and uh, there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and people are speaking different languages, what is it that they're speaking? They're speaking about the mighty works of God. The message is more prominent than the miracle itself. How often do we seek a miracle, a sign, all these experiences, rather than trusting the hard, given, beautiful, glorious gospel of God that these brothers were now receiving for the very first time in their own language. We seek these things, but God wants us to seek his son. And that is why this, the spirit has been sent. We see this even in, in places like Acts chapter 14. People are, are marveling at the gift of the spirit. And Paul's like, I'd rather say five words in my native tongue about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than 10,000 in a foreign language. Because the message is so important. I do hope we see naturally from the text that in some ways Pentecost is a reversal of Babel, though a partial reversal, in that we don't speak one heavenly, uh, we don't speak one language here on earth yet. But it is a reversal in that there is now a common heavenly rhetoric that is being spoken and believed upon by the nations of the world. We see in Acts 2, the nations are united back together for the gospel to be preached. It's amazing. Uh, uh, Tony Morita is a pastor in Carolina, North Carolina. He gives a great example in his commentary that he has a friend who is a missionary uh, with the Kurdish people who are the Medes, actually. That's where the Kurdish people come from. And he is translating the Bible, and in order to do so, he asks a, um, a local Kurdish man to help him who is not a Christian. And as they're interpreting this verse, the man sees, wait, my people were there when the gospel was given and formed the church? And he couldn't get over it, and he came to Christ. The gospel is given to the nations here. And the response is quite perplexing. See in verse 13, people are asking, or 12, what does this mean? Maybe you're there today. What does all of this mean? What does this talk about the gospel? What does this talk about Christ? What is the talk of the Holy Spirit? Others were mocking. You might be there as well. They're filled with new wine. That's the only explanation. They're drunk. We'll talk more about that next week as Peter has a response to that. But we have to respond have to make sense of this. It's miraculous. There's a few takeaways that I want us to consider today. Just three that I hope we can put in our hearts and we begin to believe on and strengthen, that God would strengthen in us as we move through the book of Acts. The first is this, God comes to us through his spirit. Beloved, I know we laugh at the people in Babel who tried to build a tower because they wanted to make their name great, but that is a representation of each and every single one of us. We try to make our name great. We try to work our way up to the heavenly places. And it is impossible. In fact, just as it is expressed in Genesis chapter 11, judgment follows that kind of posture. But aren't you glad that in the humility of Christ, he came to us and he put on flesh and he died and then he was raised and as he ascended to his rightful throne in heaven, then he sent to us 
the Holy Spirit which testifies to his works. I hope we see the conflict in our own hearts. Each and every single day, we need to be reminded that we are trying to build in our own hearts our own kingdoms. Remember, beloved, with humility that Christ came to you. The Spirit has been given to you to do the work for you, to fill you himself, to make new your heart. This is a significant doctrine because without it, we're not going to understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're not going to understand the work of his Spirit. also want us to see that the Spirit of God is the agent who strengthens ordinary people to boldly testify. We're going to talk about this a thousand times. But if you feel tired and weak and scared, we've seen how all of these disciples did too. That's why the sending of the Spirit is necessary to do the work of God. We're going to see how the Spirit regenerates hearts. We're going to see this next week. And how we need the Spirit to proclaim the word of God even. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing in the words of Christ. And the Spirit helps us do this. But it helps us to ask questions. Who are you depending on? Who do you rely on? Do you rely on his power? Do you rely on the Spirit's testimony of the risen Lord? Do you come together and you seek the things of God, asking the Father for the Spirit to be given to you. It is the Spirit who does the work within the people of God. I want us to know this, that the Christian life is the Spirit-filled life. And this same Spirit that was poured out in Pentecost has regenerated our hearts for those of us who have believed on Christ and repented of our sins or in him because the spirit has made these things known to us. So let's depend upon him. The very thing that we most needed to take care of, our sin problem before a holy God, the spirit has been given. And then finally, the gospel is for the nations. North, south, east, west. Hearing the gospel in people's own language. This is a part of the very heart of our God. No, no brother or sister forgotten. I'm really grateful that God has brought us over the last couple of years Bible translators who are members of our church at Dallas International University just 15 minutes from here. I hope through the through prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, we raise up a ton of Bible translators from our congregation and with broken hearts send you out that you would translate the Bible into different languages so that the mighty works of God accomplished through Christ may be known to the nations. Thankful for God's work in us. We see in Revelation 5 that it's the blood of Christ that's ransomed a, peop a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to do the work of priest, like to do priestly work throughout the nations. That's, that's us. We see that in Revelation 5. We see in Revelation chapter 7 that a great multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue has gathered around the throne 
and gathered before the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Spirit has been given to us, beloved, to help us believe that Christ is all. That Christ is salvation. That Christ is our hope. That Christ is our glory. That Christ is our King. That He is our Savior and our Lord. And if you in your heart have not believed on that in My encouragement is exactly what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 7. Do not harden your heart to the Spirit today. Do not harden your heart to the voice of Christ who calls his people to himself. And they hear his voice, John 10, and they come to him. I pray that every time we gather in our groups, whether it be your ABF, whether it be your small group or your community group or your discipleship group or your groups with the with the saints, that we begin to build a culture of evangelism and prayer and mission, thinking about how this glorious gospel that displays the mighty works of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is intended to go to those who do not have hope this very hour. When we come together, pray for these things. Ask the Lord to encourage one another, stir one another on to love and good works in these things. Hold each other accountable to these things. Evangelism is not to be, to be done just alone. We're to testify to these things together. And the book of Acts, God willing, will teach us these things. So the Spirit of God, the Word of God, is all we need to partake in the mission of God. And he has given us his spirit who is God, fulfilling the promises of God. And he has given it that the gospel may be proclaimed to every tribe, nation, and tongue. Beloved, I don't know where you are today. Some of you, I do know where you are because you walk. Visitors, I might not know where you are, but I want you to know this, that your soul, your spirit is a significant thing. It's a really important thing. Because it is the God of heaven who breathed life into you. And you are made in his image. And you have a spirit and a soul. And John Bunyan, who's a great Puritan and, and the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, he says this, The value of the soul is manifest by the value of the price paid for the soul to make you an heir of glory. Well, what is the price paid? The precious blood of Christ. And this is the message we proclaim. Every tribe, nation, and tongue, powered by the Spirit of God. Hope you hear that today. I hope you let that sit in you today and let the Spirit of God do work on your heart. Remembering if you're a Christian, that though you fall away in sin, you are brought back near because of Christ. And if you don't know him and you feel far off, he will bring you near for the first time. Put your trust in him today and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, would you convict us where we are in sin through the giving of your Holy Spirit? Would you show us your glories? and your power, that we may marvel at you and 
Father, as people who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, Father, you have brought out of darkness and into light. Father, thank you. Thank you for your spirit who regenerates our heart. Thank you for the son who serves as our advocate in heaven. Father, reminding that our sins have been forgiven and that we are cleansed of our sins through him. Thank you for the spirit who who testifies and who teaches us who you are. Help us to know him ever more. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Beloved, you may stand and respond in singing.